Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm Farah Jassat. And before we go to this week's episode, I want to share some exciting news. We've recently launched Intelligence Squared Plus, a new digital subscription service for online events. If you're a fan of our podcast, you can now listen to them while they're being recorded. You can join our most high profile speakers in live interactive online events and ask your questions directly to them from the comfort of your home. We have an amazing lineup over the coming months, from authors like Margaret Atwood and Salman Rushdie to big thinkers like the New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman and the economist Thomas Piketty, as well as the big names in arts and culture like the singer Paloma Faith, chef Yotam Atalengi and podcaster Elizabeth Day. If you still need convincing, here's a message from our friend Stephen Fry. Hello, I'm Stephen Fry and I'd like to encourage you to subscribe to Intelligence Squared Plus, the new and very modestly priced digital subscription service from my friends at Intelligence Squared. You would, I think, be hard-pressed to find an organisation that better presents and supports debate, discussion and civilised, rigorous conversation, perhaps never before has the world needed all of these things quite so keenly. Perhaps you'll be kind enough to support Intelligence Squared by signing up for this service. It only costs £5 a month. Do consider it. Thank you very much indeed. So there you have it. If you're interested, please do click on the link in our podcast description or go to intelligencesquared.com. We hope to see you virtually at one of our online events very soon. And I'll now hand over to my colleague Connor to tell us more about this week's episode. Thank you, Farah. And hello, podcast listeners. This week, we have journalist Adam Davidson for you. He is the creator of NPR's Planet Money and author of the new book, The Passion Economy, The New Rules for Thriving in the 21st Century. And he spoke to Hugo Lindgren all about why the new digital economy offers new ways for us to make money and why the middle classes may not be dying off as quick as we think. So it's a really interesting conversation. And just to let you know, it was recorded just before the COVID-19 lockdown. So that's why you might not hear much discussion on the pandemic. But it's a really interesting episode and book, and we hope you enjoy it. Hello, I'm Hugo Lindgren, and welcome to this episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. I'm here today with Adam Davidson, who is a business and economics journalist, and his newest book is called The Passion Economy, The New Rules for Thriving in the 21st Century. Hello, Adam. Hi, Hugo. You know, they say things, silly things, where they say full disclosure, and then they, like, say a sentence as if that could possibly be full. But I do want our listeners to know that Adam and I actually know each other pretty well. We might even be friends. I would call us friends. Yeah, let's call us friends. But this is actually going to work to the advantage of the listener 
Because if I didn't know Adam and we weren't friends, I might be inclined to be pretty nice to him and just say a lot of platitudinous things about his book. But in fact, I'm going to challenge him and make this as difficult for him as possible because that's how close we are. I'm um, looking forward to it. Good. good. I should say, however, that this book, which has been many years in the makings, and I've known about various kind of moments in its in its making, is, is really actually an excellent book. And I, I was a little scared to read it because I wasn't sure it was going to be good. <laughs> I know that feeling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but actually, it really is fantastic. I'm going to do a really boring thing, but I'm going to I'm going to start by asking Adam to talk about the beginning of the book because I really the first chapter knowing Adam as I do and knowing aspects of that story, but there was a lot more in there that I didn't know about and and it's about his about his father and his grandfather and and I, I I'm not going to really ask a specific question. I'm just going to ask Adam to sort of pick up and give us a little bit of that how that chapter unfolds and and how it sort of illuminates the the rest of the book. Yeah, it's even though it's the first chapter of the book, it's the last thing I wrote and it was actually my wife, Jen, was saying throughout writing the book, like, you know, your family is this whole story. Because uh, the basically the idea of the book is that there is a 20th century economy that had a, made a certain type of sense. It had a logic to it. It had rules to it. And that economy is falling apart. And that's causing some pain. But it also creates really new opportunities. And I do think that my father, Jack Davidson, but born Stanley Jack Davidson, and his father, also Stanley Jack Davidson, <laughs> really embody so much of the story. Because my grandfather, Stanley, is if, – if you just wanted to embody the 20th century, the American or European economy in a person, he so embodied it. He's – he was this tall guy. He kind of looked like Superman, very handsome. And where, and where, where did he live? Remind he me. lived in Worcester, Massachusetts. Okay, right. He was from a, a poor family. His father died when he was just five. His mother really struggled. And he got his girlfriend pregnant in high school and found himself with a child and very soon four children in the Depression in Worcester, Massachusetts, which is a central Massachusetts, very factory blue collar right. kind of town and he went to work at the factory he worked two shifts a day he did not particularly love his job but he saw his job as important he made he was at a factory that made the machines that make ball bearings so i remember you used to talk a lot about ball bearings i mean we would try to stop you but uh i guess this is the, the, the this is why <laughs> yes i'm from a ball bearings family yeah and you know, it, it struck me. My dad never knew what he did. All my dad knew was his dad was at work all the time and he seemed to hate his job. That's all my dad knew. Right. And learned much later that his dad worked in this factory where your job is to, you know, move heavy things to run machines. Eventually, he became a factory foreman mm -hmm. where your job is to basically yell at the men on the floor and right. make them do what they want to do. And he was... I don't think he ever made a, a huge income by any standards, but right. he saved his money and he retired with, he owned four homes. Four homes? I, in the book, I say three homes, but then I remembered a whole other home I had forgotten about. So he actually owns four homes. They, he just had a bunch of vacation homes and like- uh, Yeah. he yeah. So he, he had a really nice kind of McMansion in Ohio and then he has a vacation 
home in Lake Winnipesaukee, New Hampshire, and a vacation home in South Carolina. Wow. And in Hilton Head. And then his wife was from Norway, and they had a beautiful vacation home in Norway. How many vacation homes do you own? I own zero vacation homes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. But the world is getting better. So even though you go from three family vacation homes to zero... Things are getting better. Things are getting better. We'll, and get, we'll get back to that. We'll get back to that. So, so if you think of my the world my grandfather was in okay. is a world where if, if you're 17 or 20 or whatever, you know, and it is true that if you work hard, if you suppress your own desires but just focus on work, you can make a living. You can make a good living. Have a career. Have a, have a career. Family, have a family. Homes. You'll make more money every few years than you did before. You can retire with some degree of certainty. Now, stop right there for one second because I want to ask you, do you think or as far as you know, was there something that your grandfather was suppressing in order to stay focused on that life? You know, so we're obviously the book is called The Passion Economy. I'm going to do a little spoiler alert. It's about people following their most passionate interests and curiosities. Do you think there was something... Do you have any idea what it would be that your grandfather was – there was some love of his that he was suppressing or not following? Yeah, on? I would say he suppressed it so much that he didn't develop it. So he couldn't right. – but he was a wonderful dancer. He loved okay. dancing and was ve- apparently very, very good at dancing. He had a kind Did you ever of, see him dance? I did at okay. weddings and stuff. Okay. And even in his 80s and 90s, he was still – he could cut a rug. And him and my grandmother would win awards. Like occasionally on the weekends, they'd go to a local dance competition and win awards. That's kind of awesome. And he was he was a very wryly funny guy. Mm-hmm. He was a very smart person. He never got to go to college. But he, he clearly had enormous intelligence mm-hmm. and, and, and a quick wit. So I think – he was so not educated, but 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 definitely smart. But and, very smart, and had a lot of different sort of talents, and curious about the world, and right. and so I I do think he was someone who, born under different circumstances, could have lived a much different life. Right. Definitely having money was important to him. But then, well, let's let, let so let's talk about your maybe this is where you're going, but let's talk about your your father and the differences. So your father grows up, he understands your his father as a sort of a workaholic who does not like his job and is just kind of ground down somewhat, although the four homes. Not yeah. Bad, but still. And what path does he choose? So my father, who's the baby that was born when, when his father was in high school, decides to be an actor. And in Worcester, Massachusetts, in the 40s and 50s, the 1940s and 1950s, in a blue-collar home, like saying you want to be an actor, I mean, it, it's hard for me to even imagine what that must have been like to his father. Yeah. It's like saying, I want to be a butterfly. I want to be a unicorn. Like it's right. utterly meaningless. And all you can think of is that will be a miserable, miserable life. And so my father and and the truth is my dad didn't do as well financially as he could have if he had followed his father into <laughs> manufacturing. In fact, my grandfather's stepson did follow him and did much better. He he went into the machine tools business and became an engineer and, and had and made a good income. But my dad so my dad became an actor and right. and and he, he was still working when I was born, but before I was one, he quit his day job at Sherry Lehman Wines and became a full time actor. And that's all the only way he's made a living since then. And 
he struggled, you know, financially at various points. We lived in Greenwich Village in New York in a building that was all artists. So all it was just a building filled with people who are living their most passionate lives, the exact opposite of my grandfather, but mostly struggling financially. And also, I mean, we've talked many times about the West Beth. What's it called? The Artist housing. Artist housing. Now... It it didn't sound like the happiest place on earth, even though people were pursuing their passions who lived there. It was filled with sort of difficult, troubled people as well, right? Yeah, I think so. So if you think of my grandfather as embodying one type of 20th century life, mm-hmm. I'd say my childhood in all artist housing was embodied a very different type of of 20th century life, which was the people living on the fringe, self-consciously living on the fringe, people rejecting the mainstream of society, being artists, exploring their passion without a lot of practicality. Mm -hmm. And and part of that, you know, there there can be some self-indulgence there. And, you know, there were many kids I grew up with who ended up addicted to drugs or struggling. I don't think there was a lot of practicality. It was not seen as even appropriate to talk about money. Like, And it was a culture where wanting to even just be comfortable, wanting to have right. a steady income was seen as a violation of your passion. And the argument of this book is that at that time it was true, that there right. was a conflict, that you had to either be my grandfather work hard and not worry too much about right. your soul and uh-huh. your desires. Mm-hmm. Or you had to be my dad, which is really focus on your passion but not get to make money. The argument of the book is for a lot of people, we now live in a place where you can do both. You can really live a passionate life and the economy is set up in a way that you can succeed. Well, your argument is not only that you can, but that you almost have to, right? I mean, exactly. That, that, yeah. the, that in fact, the... Neither of those paths, your grandfather's or your father's, really work as as they once did. Yes, um, exactly. That that if in the twentieth century the typical employment you had to fulfill a role in an organization, and you can't show up and say, "Oh, I want to explore machine tools in this way. I want to explore ball bearings. I want square <laughs> ball bearings, or I want, or even you know, I don't think." the way you told me to do this is the best way. I'm going to do it this other way. You know, you think of the, what's his name, Frederick Winslow Taylor, the motion studies where they break down how to screw in a screw on a factory line to, you know, to the microsecond of every move your arm is supposed to make, every move your hand is supposed to make. And even in our field, even in journalism, you know, you, you'd have the occasional brilliant newspaper writer, magazine writer, but for the most part, you were fulfilling a function, and right. the function was externally defined. It wasn't, you know, we need a sports reporter to cover the Yankees, or yeah. we need a cops reporter, or whatever. And now, I think very few companies want generic employees to simply fulfill a role, and the ones that do are kind of terrible places. Like, you go to right. Walmart, you you can you sort of feel like people are not <laughs> living their full selves but it's in a it's a negative it hurts the company right so and, i and do it creates an experience even on the customer side that is palpable and 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 derivative of that exactly exactly ethos. right and and so that i think you you know 
there's a range. Some people can bring a lot of passion and create their own companies and really embody their passion. Some people, it's you bring a little bit of your passion, a little bit of your specialness. Let's let's switch a little bit out of your own story for a minute. It's actually a really great through line throughout the book in, in a whole bunch of different ways, and, and we'll sort of return to it. But I want to I want to talk about and I, I I pains me to just go straight chronological, and we will try to get away from that. But um, since people have probably not read the book yet, they're going to buy it. Yeah, that's, that's correct. They've already ordered it on Amazon. Good. In the first chapter, you talk about this this uh, sort of amazing professor at MIT, but the story kind of starts with his own father and a pretty pretty hilarious venture he had where he bought up a lot of off-brand sneakers and then tried to sort of uh, build a business out of that. And you want to tell us a little bit about what happened there and why that you know why that proved so unsuccessful? Yeah. And so I had this interesting experience when I began writing the book. I was like, oh, I got to find out what the rules are for succeeding in this economy. Right. And and so I called, you know, business school professors, economists. Turns out nobody studies that. <laughs> it's right. not, you know, they study how to be a venture-backed entrepreneur who's going to make a billion dollars or right. lose all the money. Right. But they don't, and they, you know, there's a lot of study of leadership of large Fortune 500 companies. But just, all right, what should a regular person yeah, do? Go about their life. Nobody or, yeah. is really studying that. And right. I called a lot of people. And finally, someone said, oh, you should talk to this guy, Scott Stern, at okay. MIT. He's a business school professor at MIT. He actually cares about this. And I called Scott, and he instantly had enormous insight and had a real passion for the subject of really his focus is how can small business people of all sorts succeed? And are there kind of some rules, some basic ideas that are teachable and learnable. Mm-hmm. And and that was that's actually like a debate. Like some people think, oh, entrepreneurs is just more like a personality or something. So as I got to know Scott and, you know, so why do you care about this? And so few other people care about this. He started telling me about his dad, Eitan Stern, who was, as Scott says, his dad was smarter than him. His dad worked harder than him. His dad had more optimism, more... Drive. More more, drive and was constantly creating new businesses and was constantly failing. And he thought, well, if I could – and he thought this when he was like 12, but then even more so as a professor. If I can help people like my dad, that would be really beautiful. And so the example he uses is his dad had this insight in, uh, in the 80s. There's all these Nike shoes, and this was sort of the, you know, this is when Nike, you know, you and I were in high school at that age. This is when it was beginning to be a thing that, like, right. oh, you Real spent spouse. a lot of money on these, like, fancy sneakers. And so his dad found the same factory that made the Nike shoes and right. found out he could get them to make a shoe that was qualitatively— Do you think they were from the same factory, really? I mean, that is a question. Yeah. <laughs> Probably every shoe factory said, every right. sneaker factory said. We make the Nikes. We make the Nikes, yeah. But he said they were from the same, and then he had these. And, and that they were qualitatively the same. Right. They were pretty ugly. They were these white sneakers, and they had this big S because his- Brand was decided, Striker, right? Striker with a pretty Y. pretty good brand name, It's right? a good brand name, yeah. And he ordered like a container load of these things. And to this day, 30 years later, he still has- a, a garage filled with striker brand shoes because nobody wants a cheaper Nike. It's just there's just not a market for that. And and he was thinking about that. He didn't understand why that was why that was or why he didn't understand the fundamental 
value exchange. When a 15-year-old kid goes into a store and wants those Nikes and wants the more expensive wants the more sneaker. expensive stylish sneaker, they are not simply saying I want footwear and I'm willing to pay this amount, but I'd rather pay less. There there's a very complex exchange happening there. And essentially what Scott's lessons are is how do you figure out who that customer is and what's the context in which that customer is making their purchasing decision. And Adam, I'm going to stop you right there because we're going to go into the rules that Scott yeah. sort of developed out of that, you know, out of that experience and many others. But we need to take a short break just for a second. I'm here with Adam Davidson, who's the author of the book, The Passion Economy, and we'll be right back. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, I'm Farah Jassat from Intelligence Squared. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Before we get back to it, I'd like to encourage you, our loyal podcast listeners, to subscribe to Intelligence Squared Plus, our new subscription service for online interactive events. Intelligence Squared brings together the world's top thought leaders and opinion formers, from Margaret Atwood, Thomas Friedman and Salman Rushdie, to Mehdi Hassan, Bernadine Evaristo and Elizabeth Day. Join us and take part in these exclusive online events where you can ask your questions directly to our speakers. It's only £5 a month and you get the first month completely free. Please do consider supporting Intelligence Squared and subscribe now by clicking the link in our podcast description. Thank you so much. All right, we're back. I'm Hugo Lindgren and I'm here with Adam Davidson, who is a uh, business and economics journalist. He's also the um, founder and, and uh, CEO of a, of a podcasting company called Three Uncanny Four. Co-founder. Co-founder. With Sorry. Laura Mayer. Laura Mayer. And we're talking today about his book, The Passion Economy, The New Rules for Thriving in the 21st Century. And we're talking about, right now, a uh, MIT professor named Scott Stern, who Adam had found and who had developed some ideas about what makes people sort of successful in the modern economy. And what, what Adam did, I guess, here is he, he – uh, or Adam, you – what yeah. you did here, 
because I'm sitting here with Adam, is he, uh, he he tried to sort of distill a few rules that sort of practical rules that anybody could use, not not just people in business school or not people, you know, in a particular point in life, but really anybody to kind of figure out how to do something, you know, with their lives that that, uh, that feels fulfilling and that they're passionate about. So you want to start and tell me a little bit about what those rules are, and, and I don't think we need to go through all of them, obviously, but we want to get a sense of what they're about. Sure. And, you know, I think Warren Buffett is great on this topic, that at the end of the day, business is about actually creating or doing something of value that another person recognizes as having value. Right. I mean, it's a basic idea. Like hopefully what we're doing here. Hopefully what we're doing here. Exactly. <laughs> in this podcast or in any business you can think of. Right. And it's amazing how rarely that core idea comes up, that that the the purpose of a business, I mean, yes, you want a good culture and you want to support your staff. You want to be you, innovative. You want to be innovative and you want all this stuff. But at the end of the day, you want to make something or do something that someone else will voluntarily spend money on. Right. And so I'd say at the the core of the passion economy is that, well, let's go back just one step to the widget economy of the 20th century. Okay. Where these are the sneakers. The sneak. Bit. These are sneakers. These right. are Snickers bars. These are ball bearings. Ball bearings, or accountants, or dry cleaners, or where the main thrust is repetition, making mm-hmm. things quicker, cheaper, faster, so that you can sell more of them, mm-hmm. and the the basic Adam Smith rule of the price comes from supply and demand. That basically, and 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 the way economists talk about it is, it's the point of indifference. That's okay. where you price things. You price things where the least interested potential customer is like, okay, fine, I'll give you a buck if you give me a Snickers bar, but if you charge me a buck oh one, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna buy it. it you it, want to walk right up to that line. Want you want to walk right up to that line because that's where you sell the most. Because one penny more and you'll sell fewer. And my argument is the passion economy works very differently. There are some people who really want Snickers bars or really want your services. And in 20th century technology, it was very hard to find those people. Well, it wasn't hard to find enough of them, right? So, hard to find enough of those right. people. And hard to measure their in- intensity of their interest. Right. Because – you know, if you using Snickers as an example, they're making millions of these bars in Chicago. They're shipping them around the country to stores. Well, they're shipping them to distributors who are getting them to stores. And, you know, people are coming in and buying them, but there's no – it's very hard. You can do surveys and stuff, but it's very right. hard to measure the intensity. But because of the internet, because of other automated technologies, because of global trade – I can now find people, even if they're th- spread very thinly around the country or the world, I can get stuff to them inexpensively. I don't have to ship entire container loads of sneakers. I can actually right. drop ship one pair of sneakers to this person in Thailand and that person in Australia. So you can sort of aggregate a, a kind of meaningful audience that's, even if that's pretty far flung. That's pretty far flung, right. exactly. And you can focus your attention on those people, not the most indifferent, but the most enthusiastic. And that means you can charge what they how the level they value it at. Right. And or at least closer to that. So pricing so finding your most enthusiastic audience is crucial, mm-hmm. understanding that audience what they value and then pricing according to their perceived value, not according to just what they 
a lot of companies do is cost plus. Just it costs us this much to make it. I'm going to add. I'm going to add twenty percent or whatever to right. for my profit. And and I'd say at the core of the lessons here, those are the core lessons. How do you identify a group that? Well, how do you identify what you uniquely can do? Because if you happen to not really care that I, I have a friend who makes cheese and his cheese business struggles. And I learned it took me a while. He doesn't particularly like cheese. He doesn't have a taste for cheese. So he can't be the one making cheese. He saw it as a business opportunity, but he doesn't have he doesn't have he a past cheese and he doesn't like it. I mean, he's he's fine with it. Is this one of your Amish friends? It is, yeah. So we're going to get to this in a minute. But Adam, I actually used to think that Adam would talk about his Amish friends. And I I thought it was like a code for something else. Um, like a code for Amish. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Turns out they're actual Amish people. They're actually Amish people. There's a really good story about an Amish sort of entrepreneur in the book. But but wait, I want to cut you off there. Because although I am fascinated by your cheesemaker friend who doesn't like cheese. But but there's there's a... there's a thing there that you're talking about, a phenomenon that I, I think is probably a lot trickier for people. And I, I mean, I, I, I'm sure you understand this, but the idea of pushing your pricing to a kind of maximal position is something that I think is quite difficult for a lot of people. It, 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 it may well come to a, you know, it, it, seems, it seems greedy, right? That like, oh, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to just add 20% to my costs of this. I'm going to add the most I can. And that's the kind of thing that troubles people. I mean, A, I think it troubles some people to do it, and it's very difficult for them to even, like, figure out how to, how to, how to do that themselves. But, but it's also – there's a lot of critics out there of things. I mean, when, when, you know, when Uber first came up and they did a lot of surge pricing, you know, the whole idea of it was meant to bring in more drivers and actually bring costs down, and yet – there was just this hysterical reaction to it that they were they were you know screwing people. Yeah, exactly. And and this actually I think is a crucial point. I think you're exactly right that people have a people who set prices are get very scared about rising raising their prices because they rightly think fewer people will buy my good. Right. No, they don't realize it's good if fewer people. You're getting rid of the disinterested. But that's also very hard to say. I'm not going to sell to everybody. I'm only going to sell to the people who truly value my good or service. Mm-hmm. But here's how I think you should think about it, that if you price according to passion, so you price according to the value of the most enthusiastic consumer, you will then produce the product that they most want. Well, because you'll have to. You'll have to, exactly. Right. <laughs> it's a discipline on you. Mm-hmm. And it also gives you the resources. So if... If a chocolate maker makes a chocolate that costs considerably more than a Snickers bar, they have to justify that. Right. They have to think more about the chocolate. They have to buy higher quality chocolate. They have to stay in touch with that customer. Get it to the stores quicker. Get it to the store. All of that. It's a discipline that I think is very good for the buyer and the seller Mm -hmm. and will create things that wouldn't exist under the other system. Another story I tell in the book is this accountant, Jason Blummer. Mm-hmm. And Jason Blummer was- I found it amazing that one of the early chapters is about an accountant. I thought that was brave. It was brave, yes. And, and, but he's, a, he's got, I think he has a great story. No, he does. I he like does. that story. He does. You just hear, oh, here now we're going to talk about an accountant. accountant. Like, exactly. It's a little terrifying. I'd like to get on to the Amish chapter. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so Jason was like many, many accountants. He had, you know, what you could call a geographic practice. He, mm-hmm. he, 
was an accountant to people and businesses that were in his neighborhood. And he had hundreds of clients, as many accountants do. He charged whatever the prevailing rate was, which wasn't that much. And he did a bunch of things that needed to get done. He had filed their taxes, their payroll, whatever. And he did it probably about the same as other people would do it. Right. And he went through a journey where he was like, I hate how people don't want my service. Like nobody wants a tax return file. Right. Nobody wants an audit. Right. It's you do it because you have to. Right. And so you pay a guy because you have to. And he's like, what would it be like if I had customers who loved working with me, who right. were ex- enthusiastic to work with me? What would that be like? And it took him on a long journey, but eventually he realized, okay, there's a, he basically realized the passion economy, although he used different language, that there's certain kinds of businesses that need help pricing and finding that unique value that they can provide. And he's going to help. cutting off that indifferent consumer. And cutting off that indifferent, firing customers. Right. He now has 40 clients as opposed to 400. And he makes several multiples of what he used to make because he's charging far more. Now, I happen to be one of his customers. and And I pay him wildly more, many 20, 30 times what... I could get another accountant for Tw- 20 or 30 times as much. But you mean if you hired like someone off the internet? Yeah. It would, in Bangladesh kind of thing? He, like, no, even like a solid, he, it's tens of thousands of dollars a year, but he's talking to me and providing insight and value to me that is just way more than just a tax return or mm-hmm. he's a real. Is he making you good about money? Adam? He's making me better about yeah. <laughs> money. and But here's the thing. He can't do that if he had 400 customers. He right. needs to do it with 40. Right. Because he, he needs to charge you to make it. To make it worthwhile. Yeah. And, and part of it is just he spends more time with me than a, another accountant would. But also he's reading a lot. He's thinking a lot. Mm-hmm. He's going to conferences a lot. He's developing his thinking a lot. And – and and I'm me and the other four thirty nine clients are paying for that time, but we're we're benefiting from right. that as well. And another thing he's really good at, which I think is another key lesson, is Jason's really good at constantly reminding you of the value he's providing. Let me ask you a couple. There's there's two not points of contention, but two things that I feel like you make feel a little simpler than they feel like to me in the real world. So I want to get you to to respond to them and, and talk about it. One is this like sort of finding what your passion is and this kind of self-assessment that seems to go into like the process. I mean, to be a critical piece of the process. It seems to me that that's a lot harder for people than you make it. Like one of the things about this 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 book is that it's filled with these kind of like glorious success stories of people who like never trip over their own feet. And, you know, every, you know, every tough relationship with their mom turns into some like incredible insight and amazing conclusion that they then go to build their amazing business. And I didn't necessarily see myself a lot of the times in those stories. And I was wondering, like, if you could talk a little bit more about like what some of the pitfalls or even I mean, I was I was curious. There's not really even like a you know, it's very in vogue to, to, to like study failure now. You know, everyone does that. You do not do that. But I'm curious if you have some stories along those lines or have some insights into like when people want to do this and when they really want to like pursue things and how that can still 
you know, kind of go wrong and what some of the what some of the lessons from that might be. Yeah, absolutely. And um and the truth is many of these people did fail a lot. I think I mention it, but maybe I don't linger on it. Like Jason Blummer, it mm-hmm. took him 15 years to figure this out. I wanted serious failure. Yeah, yeah, know, yeah. Like brink of despair type failure. Yeah. But go ahead. He and he made a ton of missteps. And really, I mean, there were times where it was like, oh, no, I put my whole family at jeopardy. Because right. what he did was he quit his old firm, decided to start a new firm that would have these new principles. But he hadn't really figured out the principles. He hadn't figured out how to tell his story or how to find customers. And he was sort of doing the worst of both. <laughs> like, we have too few customers, but we're just not really doing anything of Still real value. The yeah, the tax returns yeah. and all the same stuff. Yeah, right? and Scott Stern, actually, his journey to academically was very, he's really struggled because mm-hmm. it turns out it's not like being a super promising young academic in business or economics, no one's interested in this stuff. They don't want you to study small business and that kind of thing. So, and I mean, the way I would put it is honing your passion takes can take a lot of work. And it's not something most people are just born with fully formed. And then doing the next step, which is matching your passion to an audience that wants it, also can take a huge amount of work. Mm-hmm. I guess the way I see it is it's so valuable that it's worth spending years on. Right. Like it, it, it's, you know, just like if no one went to college and people were going around hey, we just invented this thing. We're right at 18 when you're ready to start earning. We're going to just have you go to this place for four years. You're going to study a bunch of random stuff that may or may not help you in the future. We'd be like, wait, why Why would I do that? I think this process is similar. It's, it's a searching. Mm-hmm. It's, it's often, I mean, almost by definition, you're finding something you alone can do, which means no one else is doing it. So you have to kind of wander in the wilderness a bit. And I don't think you have to be rich to do it, but I do think you have to have a bit of a safety net. I, very right. few people in this book had wealthy families, but they had – they knew that there was someone who would catch them if they fell. Right. I mean, it's funny because I was thinking about Worcester, Massachusetts now, you know, and and what the state of the passion economy is there relative to – you know, we're sitting here in Brooklyn, New York, where the passion economy is, uh, you know, flourishing in all imaginable ways. But in some of these spots around America, these especially these former sort of blue-collar factory towns, the sort of opportunities for these kinds of things, it's not that they don't exist, but it, it adds a degree of difficulty to, to figuring out how to do it, even having the supportive culture around you that helps, even if they don't, you know. Um, Absolutely, yeah. And, and, and I... I think this uh, the the passion economy rewards you know we we hear a lot about rising inequality mm-hmm. and the, and the super elite the 0.01% right. or you know people went to Harvard and Yale and are kind of born on third base and right. and think they hit a triple and that definitely like that's a real issue right my argument would be there are far more people who can benefit from this economy mm-hmm. but I do think it requires some hunger for something it requires some curiosity some passion of some sort even right. if it's ill-formed and it takes a while to figure it out it requires 
a comfort with risk that not everyone has, and it requires some kind of safety net. Again, I don't right. think it means right a trust fund, a trust fund, right. but it means like okay, worst case scenario, we'll go live in my mom's, and Basement, there's right. enough room that <laughs> right. the kids will have their own, you know, or whatever. And that's not for everyone. I do think the 20th century was a unique moment in human history where there was a place for almost everyone in the economy. Things were moving so, growing so quickly. The, mm-hmm. the rate of economic growth for most modern economies in the 20th century is almost, it's totally unprecedented. Right. And, you know, I have an uncle who was developmentally disabled and was able to be gainfully employed because we needed, every, and, and then eventually he reached a point where he couldn't work anymore. The economy just didn't need him. And I don't think he was going to be a passion economy success. Mm-hmm. You know, my view, and I could be wrong, is I'm describing something I'm seeing. I'm not advocating for anything. So this book is not saying, hey, I want this to be the economy. It's saying, I think this is the economy. This economy has a logic all its own, a new logic. And the sooner you understand that logic, the more likely you are to benefit. You are so, though. I mean, it has a tone of advocacy, not that you're promoting the facts of it, but you are sort of promoting... A, a participation in it, a like a, of taking those risks and doing these things that that enable you to you know reap the rewards. I I do think yes. I I am constantly surprised by how many people stay married to p- jobs and professions and companies that seem clearly destined for darker things. And and so. I, I do believe that the sooner you accept that, oh, okay, there's a new economy and it's actually paradoxically riskier to take the less risky path of just, all right, I'm going to stick with my job. I'm going to stay. I'm just going to stay as a cog in a large machine. I'm just going to stay with my corporate job forever. Well, but there's there's another piece of that and you actually touch on it in the book. You know, there's a there's a there's at least a chapter, more than a chapter about these people who worked at Google and you describe some of like what the work environment is like at Google. And, you know, I know people, you know, people, friends who've worked at Google or Facebook or, or Apple. And, you know, these places are just sort of paradises in terms of the perks and the the, the kind of general, like, level of, of um, you know, vacation time and food and, and, you know, activities and all this amazing stuff. And it seems, and this is like, it's beyond anecdotal, but that the, you know, the millennial generation really seems to like that. And they like, so they're not just trying to write off their future and go to work for, you know, Con Ed or something. They they want to, they want to like stay in this cocoon of, of plenty that these companies offer. That's kind of opting out of the passion economy too, isn't it? I don't think so. No, I think that's opting into the passion economy. Really? Yeah, I think um I think that there are companies and more companies, I'm still a tiny minority of companies, but that recognize that I mean, I have a company. I employ a bunch of people. We right. make podcasts and we want every single person we we work with each staff member on a personal passion development plan where right. we want everybody to be on a journey to developing themselves. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't, you know, they still have jobs to do and work to do, and right. and we expect them to do it. And some of them, we haven't faced this yet, but you can imagine at some point someone's like, I just want to bake pastries, and we'll be like, oh, we might not be the right fit, you know. Um, but <laughs> although so, you might be, right? <laughs> although we might be, we'll see. <laughs> but all the, so far, the passions have all been appropriate. So I do think 
it's not don't work in a big company. It's, I mean, look at our industry, you know, something, you know, like there are hundred, hundreds of thousands of fewer journalists today than there were 15 years ago. There's legacy publication, legacy media outlets that don't even have a story about how they're going to survive. They are just trying to cut losses and trying to keep their heads down. Right. And I think, I do think more than, far more than in the 20th century, if you're going to work in a place, you have to kind of think like, oh, okay, I'm doing something more than just getting a paycheck. I'm like really putting a big bet on this company and this leadership and both their ability to be successful, but also their ability to help me develop. And if you hear that and think, you know what? I don't trust my leadership to do that. Then you probably should find a different job. Right. But I don't think America is going to be a country where every single person or even our, our entrepreneurs running their own small business. Most people will work for other people. But you can work for people who understand the rules of the new economy and allow you to thrive in them. Or you can work for people who are stuck in the 20th century. And, you know, I think the person in the worst shape is someone who's young enough that they still need some earnings, right. <laughs> but old enough that they don't have a fire in their belly or they're, you know, they're not in a position to take that transformative risk. And, you know, if you're in your, I mean, I'm almost 50. Right. If if you're in your 50s and you have been conservative and staying in a job forever and then you suddenly feel the rug pulled out from under you and you you haven't been someone who's trained yourself to embrace risk and ba- embrace passion, like that's a tough transition. Well, why don't we talk about that person? I mean, maybe not who's gotten the rug pulled out from under them because that person is in crisis. But it's the person who's not in crisis, but who is stuck. Like, what are the like? What are the first steps? Do you think for someone like that to like change their habits, change that sort of um, kind of addiction to security or to you know to to old hierarchies or um, stability, whatever the whatever the specific attraction is? Like, what's the what are the rules that? or in this book that that speak directly to that situation. Yeah, there's there's this thing Jason Blummer says that which is you can never have he's the, he's the accountant. The accountant. Right. Which he says to his clients. You can never have too narrow a niche, but you can narrow your niche too quickly. So <laughs> to like I remember meeting a graphic design firm that focuses on the graphic design needs of small third-tier market hospitals. And you might think Whoa. How many of them are there? Do they have such unique needs? Right. But apparently there's enough of them and they do have unique needs that other hospitals are either really small and funded by the municipal government or they're really big and part of some big chain. Right. And so this market, they've identified this market and they know everything about that market and they're able to anticipate their needs, they're able to um, solve their graphic design challenges in a new and unique way. But that takes a while. That that can take a few beats. Now, obviously, right. if you're born rich or you have investors or something, then you can maybe take a flyer on it sooner. Right. But I actually think it starts earlier and more internally. There's mm-hmm. a looking at, you know, and, and this is a benefit of age for those who are older. Okay, what are the things that, A, really feed me, that I really enjoy? 
And and then what are the things that I seem to be pretty good at, that people communicate to me I'm pretty good at? There's a woman in the book, Damali Peterson, who did this. She was a very like fast-rising corporate lawyer, doing really well, and she just wasn't happy. And she wrote down a list of everything she thought she was good at, and then she circled everything she actually liked doing. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't that many things in the end. Right. She was good at a lot, but what did she really like doing? Right. And then she thought about it, and she opened a practice that was helping people solve problems through mediation mm-hmm. rather than through a kind of adversarial court process. Yeah. Right. yeah. Mm-hmm. So I just talked to a guy who was telling me about his mom, and his mom's a cleaning lady at a center for, for senior citi- senior citizens who need to be institutionalized. And being a cleaning lady, she doesn't particularly like it. Right. But- and it's not the patients. She's not fed by being kind to the patients, but she is fed by being a mentor to the other young immigrant, to the much younger immigrants who come mm-hmm. in. And that really gives her life purpose. Right. So the passion piece might not be the actual product or service you do. It might be the, the way. aspect of it, right. Yeah. Right. And, and I think, and you know, for some people, it might mean talking to people who know you and saying, hey, be upfront with me. What am I good at? And what am I not so good at? And right. figuring out oh, I'm a good storyteller and I seem to have a particular ability to talk to this kind of person or that kind of person. And then as you develop that, you should also be developing an understanding of, all right, what is the market for that? You know, so it's, I I notice in the book, I write a lot about manufactured products, food products and wine. I want to talk to you about food products in particular, but go ahead and finish what you're saying. And and I do that because it's just easier to write about. You go someplace, you see what they're making, and you write the story. But but often it's it's more that it's fuzzier, but it's a service that you can provide that other people can't provide. And and figuring out the kind of market for that, figuring out and and slowly identifying. And the key piece is. Who are who's out there who wants what I can do and isn't getting it right now? And that's when you know, oh, there's probably a business here. Right. One of the things that's strange, though, I mean, I, I was reading a story this week about Casper, the, the mattress company that I guess is about to go public. And there was an analysis of it that I saw that said that there are 176 online mattress companies in the United States. Wow. And, you know, and I, I thought of that. You, you have a little part of the book where you, you, you're talking about, like, I think it's the candy bar company and, you know, going into Whole Foods and seeing all these new brands. And you sort of talk about how excited you are about that. But sometimes I get really not excited by that. You know, there's like 500 kinds of kombucha, you know, all these like micro brands that are essentially the same thing, but just have some little tiny spin on the ball, some little different logo or some kind of like little additive or whatever, but really are the same thing. And there does seem to be this kind of like herd thing happening, you know, here in Brooklyn, the center of the passion economy and elsewhere, that there's not a lot of great new ideas. There's a lot of people trying to get in on the exact same thing. Do you have a thought about that or or do you disagree or like what's your... No, I definitely don't disagree. I think there's a lot of that. I mean, I remember a few years ago, it seemed like artisanal beef jerky was the hot Brooklyn thing. I know. I I, I haven't even heard anyone. It's like the first time I've heard someone say it in years. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, by definition, if you're doing something lots of other people are doing, you're not doing the passion economy um, because I define it that way. I I think that there's a few issues wrapped up in that. So, So one issue is I think we're and when I talk to computer science people, this is a big conversation going on. 
matching is a really hard problem. So you're you. You have whatever bundle of interests and desires that you have. Right. And then there's people out in the world making and doing things that may or may not please you. And right. how do you match those two things? It turns out to be a really big math problem. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I still find that when Netflix or Hulu or Amazon recommends things, it does not get me, even though I've consumed a lot of content through right, them. Right, you've given so much data to them about exactly who you are and what you like. They still get it wrong all they the time. They still get it wrong all the time. And when you walk into Whole Foods, it can, or whatever, it can be overwhelming. Like there's 78,000 types of shampoo and it's like, ah, I don't, you know, yeah. not an issue for me because I'm bald, but um, but you have a full head of hair, so it matters to you. Thank you for letting all out there in podcast yeah. land know that. Yes, exactly. Full head of hair. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now, even there, I bet if we went to Whole Foods, there'd be some that you'd really notice and you might not even be conscious that you're noticing and some you completely ignore and they're speaking to you in some way. Right. But- from what I hear through artificial intelligence and other means, we're going to get much better at that matching. Like retail big box shopping is probably a bad way to match for a lot of products. And 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 so – and that matching ha- – like there's information going both ways. You're right. learning about the things that are out there, but the people out there making and doing stuff oh, are yeah. learning about you and what right. you want. And I think we're at the very early stage of that process. So my rosy vision of the future is far more of us are spending more of our time engaging with things that are un- that we really like whether it's clothes, glasses, food, the service providers in our life, the and and each one of us will have different priorities, different bundles like you Probably will always care more about clothes than I will. I tried to get you interested in clothes for a you long did, time. And I see you totally let that go. Yeah, though. you have. <laughs> yeah, I have let it go. But but when I go to Manhattan, I try and wear better clothes. But <laughs> so I like that vision of the world. Like I, I like, and that's the human experience. Like it, it's only been you know a hundred and so years since in which people all over the country and then all over the world are drinking Starbucks coffee eating, you know, Snickers bars, drinking Coke. Like, that's a brand new thing. I mean, it used to be, I remember talking to some very old people who talked about, you know, it used to be different. <laughs> you'd go to different <laughs> countries, you'd go to different cities. Things were different. And now yeah. everything's the same. And I like the idea that things will be different again. They won't be geographically different in the way that... Although there could be some of that, too. There could I mean, be some of that, too, yeah. Right. But I like the idea that I go into your house and I open your pantry... When you're not home, I just break in. And <laughs> and it's just a bunch of things I don't know about. I find that exciting, right. you know? And and then you come to my house and it's a whole bunch of things that you don't know about, you know? Right. And I, I, that feels supportable. Now, I think the kombucha copycat product is actually like it's a it's – a, a glitch? It's a glitch. It's a temporary problem, right. I think, I hope, that will be sorted out. Right. And where do you see these things – I mean, there, there, there are some things in the book that aren't just about candy bars and, and pencils and stuff. But where does this lead to sort of bigger, broader ideas about actual, you know, big advances in human well-being? Um, I mean, the, 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 the micro-targeting of consumer products is – I mean, I like it. It's cool. But it's not – doesn't necessarily point the way to a more blissful human life or experience, you know? It's just nice. 
So where does the passion economy meet the, you know, the change of the world, the radical, like, things are going to things are are going to improve in terms of longevity and health and 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 human beings not trying to kill each other all the time. Yeah, that would be good. Yeah. 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 And I I don't know that I that this is a total like I figured it all out. This yeah. is the secret to everything. Well, you did write a book, so I I hope I hope you have figured most of it out. Yeah, well, I figured out the stuff <laughs> in the book, but I I think that there's a there's a couple things that make me big picture excited and not just individ you know excited for a few individuals. So so one thing is, um, wh- where you really do see the passion economy more advanced, I would say, than consumer goods is what economists call supply chain businesses. So if you think of any complex product, a car, a airplane, a a book for that matter, right. there's a bunch of intermediaries providing the raw material, providing the paper, or providing the steel, or providing, and then, you know, shaping it and doing procedures to it. And it's already much more advanced in that world. The, you know, it, it the supply chain used to be very regimented and very centrally controlled. Like mm-hmm. Ford Motor Company would be like, here's all the stuff we want for a car, they would send word out and the supply chain would deliver what they asked for mm-hmm. according to the terms they asked for it. Right. And now you see a lot more innovation and entrepreneurship in how you package the products that that are intermediate goods, that are business-to-business goods going okay. to other businesses. Right. I mean, Jason Blummer, that accountant, would be an example of right. that. He's providing a, a much more customized service. Mm-hmm. That actually can be sig- like radically significant. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, if you look at job growth and job salaries for the non-elites, so people who didn't go to college or didn't go to top college, Mm -hmm. they tend to work for supply chain businesses. And you see the supply chain businesses that follow what I'm describing pay far more, they grow faster, et cetera. And generally speaking, like when we think of economic growth, we often think of Google or Snapchat or Facebook. We think of these fancy companies, these big, fancy, giant companies. But making all small business, you know, 5% or 10% more effective on average would – that would be like launching a whole fleet of Googles. I mean, that would have a huge and material impact on lots and lots and lots of people's lives. So I do think – but the other thing that I I think – and this is – I think that for – political cohesion for people not voting for crazy nationalists, it's helpful to have a national narrative that of broadly shared prosperity. That is right. a really good precondition for democracy and peacefulness and, and decency. Right. And I don't think we have that right now. I think, you know, if you look at... No, we in fact have, yeah, precisely the opposite, the Make America Great Again sort of ideas based on a, it's all falling apart... Uh, exactly. Things are screwing people right and left, and you are part of b- the people being screwed. Exactly. And and I think, you know, Hillary Clinton, the last Democratic candidate, and most of the current Democratic candidates, there's not a optimistic, forward-looking narrative. It's much more, and perhaps rightfully so, but it's focused on the the subtle or not-so-subtle 
background is a zero-sum world where, oh, those rich people are getting rich. That means you're not getting rich, as opposed to, hey, we're all going to get rich together. Right. And I'm not saying there isn't truth to that. I mean, there, there is wealth capture by the wealthy, and that's a problem. But but I'd like to think that it, that if we can build a narrative where people are like, oh, okay, it's scary, it's confusing, it's different, but... My kids are going to be okay. Like, it's going to be okay. We right. just have to adjust. I mean, if you think of, I think of... So the book, the, the sort of underlying message of the book, there's something towards that. It's what you're... Yes. I mean, you, you close the book with a, with a pretty optimistic sort of essay about Milton Keynes. And I actually want you to talk about that in a minute, and then I have one question about that. But just talk about what... So he, in the 30s, at a very bad... He was, he was an older guy at that time in his 60s. The sort of condition of the world is... About as bad as it's been in the last hundred years, and what what was his point then? John Maynard Keynes, one of the giants of economics and the British economist, um, talked about in this book economic conse- economic consequences of our grandchildren. I think um, that's right. You know, he described what a hundred years from now will look like, and imagined you know the average person will be many times richer than the average person today. Um, and that we'll have opportunity to pursue our passions. He talked about that mm-hmm. precise thing. And we actually are. We are wildly richer, many, many multiples richer than our great-grandparents were 100 years ago. And we have, you know, life-saving drugs and, and comforts and, oper- you know, he didn't even talk about air conditioning. He didn't talk about airplanes and, and you know, all the things that make our lives better. And not yeah, just... Yeah, he didn't talk about Google. Didn't talk about Google. You're right. That would have been very impressive if he had. <laughs> but all the things, not just that the hyper-rich have, but that all, many, most of us, at least in, in, in richer countries, have access to. And, and having that kind of broad view, I think, is very, very helpful and I actually think the the 20s and 30s were an interesting time because we, you know, the 1880s is seen as sort of the dawn of the second industrial revolution when real mass production begins. And, right. and we and it was experienced as a crisis for a generation or more. It was. And of course it was. We had people had been agrarian for 10,000 years. Our family structure, where we live, how we felt about ourselves, our religious faith, right. everything was embedded in farming. And, you know, there were non-farmers, but farming was the core. I mean, right. there was a true debate in, you know, between George Washington and Alexander Hamilton and others is, can you actually produce value if you're not farming? Is right. that even a thing? Right. And, you know, there's all this crisis literature from the 1880s all the way through the 1930s about women are moving into cities and working in factories and smoking cigarettes and wearing pants and doing all this horrible stuff. Right. And we could it could only be interpreted by most people as destruction, as negative, as the end of something. Right. And then it took a while. It took literature, it took unions, it took the development of modern corporations. It took a a while for people to realize, oh, this is actually pretty good. Like farming kind of sucks and and I like living in an apartment in the city and and yeah, my dad's job really sucked and my job's not great, but my kid will have an even better job. And I hope that that's where we are. We're we're in the early stages of like, oh, okay, this isn't all just the death of something good. This is also the beginning of something else that can be good. Well, let's let's close with a sort of a more personal question that I thought on my way over here. Adam and I both grew up in New York City 
different neighborhoods. But, you know, a common thing you hear about New York is that it used to be better, right? I mean, it's it's sort of a it's not the same people who are voting for making America great again, but there's definitely this common refrain among among New Yorkers that the um, the culture and life in the city was richer and and more meaningful and certainly weirder and passionate. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. How do you feel about that? Like you know, we talked about your childhood in West Beth. We talked about so you're, you're in in a kind of broadly economic and sort of sweep of civilization way. You're. Uh, sort of espousing this optimism, but yourself as a human living here in New York City in 2020, is it moving ahead or advancing in a way that you personally feel good about? I do think that New York is so dominated by Wall Street, mm-hmm. even, far more than when we were kids. Mm-hmm. You know, it it it's so... And I think Wall Street is a problematic industry for what I'm talking about because mm-hmm. it's so huge. It's getting bigger. And there's a lot of very serious financial literature that suggests that Wall Street is not getting better by creating better products and services that benefit people, but by essentially rewriting the rules to capture wealth. And there's a big debate there, and we don't have to get into the whole debate, but... There's something to it. There's something to it. Right. And and I would say that there's no question that Wall Street wealth is crowding out a lot of other activity. Right. And you know, growing up in Greenwich Village, when... I mean, yes, there were drugs and crime, and I got mugged three times before I turned 11, and there was prostitution, and but there also was cheap rent, and it, you, it was fairly easy for somebody with a weird idea to start a theater or start a bakery or whatever to kind of get up and going. And I do think you see, you know, you used to see more of that, and Brooklyn's becoming more, but I think having... Uh, you know, Jane Jacobs, who lived in the village, wrote about this, that having having an economy that allows for that self-exploration is a better economy in a lot of different ways. And I'd like I, I would like us to have more of that. Great. Well, Adam, thank you. Thank you very much. My name is Hugo Linger, and I've been talking to Adam Davidson, who is the author of The Passion Economy. And for more information on this podcast and others, please go to intelligencesquare.com. And thank you very much, Adam. Thank you, Hugo. That was great.